Well, as you're clapping, keep on giving it up for our moms this morning. So I'm going to embarrass my mom right now. And so mom, will you stand up? So you, you know where you are. You go ahead and stand up. So uh, because, they, oh, hang on, hang on, don't, 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 don't applause just yet because I want you to know what you're applauding for. Like, so if you appreciate my ministry here, this is one of the biggest tools that God used to shape me and form me into who I am today. So if you appreciate the ministry, give it up for my, my mom. And so, um, I am truly, truly grateful for uh, my mother. I told myself I wasn't going to cry, but I really do. And I'm grateful for her. Uh, she was definitely the spiritual leader in our house, and God used her in such a miraculous way and continues to uh, use her but but now I'm the one that's parenting her because I've told her she cannot embarrass me anymore because now the roles have reversed early in my life she didn't want me to embarrass her when we were out in public now I don't want her to embarrass me when she's out in public so anyways but I'm grateful for you happy mother's day I'm gonna look that way all right so if you have your bible go ahead and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 12 Acts chapter 12 we are in our empowered series as we're walking through the book of Acts as you're turning there I'm sure we're all familiar with the term backseat driver how many of you you are married to a backseat driver just raise your hand and uh, Joni you better raise your hand uh, because I'm raising my hand uh, Joni and I we we are backseat drivers because when I drive Joni does not like the way that I drive she does not like how slow I drive uh, she does not like the way I go to certain places she's like why did you choose that way because I'm driving and this is what maps told me to do why aren't you using ways I'm telling you I, this is my car, my phone, my Apple CarPlay. I get to use whatever I want to. And then whenever we pull into a parking lot like Costco, won't you just park? Just park. No, I, I have a strategic place of where I park. Now, when the roles are reversed and I'm sitting in the driver's seat, I'm constantly praying because it's like riding with Jeff Gordon. I mean, it's like, it's amazing. And so I'm, I'm a backseat driver, my wife is a backseat driver, and those cancel out. And then let me ask you, how many of you, you have heard of the terminology Monday morning quarterback? How many of you are a Monday morning quarterback for your favorite sports team? Because uh, I know we got some UCF, we got some UF, we got some Florida State, I mean, and I'm probably missing somebody in there, but yeah, okay, <laughs> so... Uh, so you're always trying to play the Monday morning quarterback. Why didn't the coach do this? Why didn't they run the ball more? Why didn't they pass more? How did we lose to that team? Oh my goodness. And you're constantly playing that Monday morning quarterback. And then we've heard of the terminology of second guesser. And we like to constantly second guess ourselves, or we like to second guess like our boss, we have a spouse, our parents. And like, oh, why, why'd you do it that way? I, I wish you would have listened to me. Uh, you should have. And, and it's kind of like, oh my gosh, should have, would have, could have. I mean, and you're constantly like second guessing. You're probably thinking, where are you going with this? Well, 
the roles that we like to play in our life to one another are the roles we like to play to a sovereign God. We like to be God's backseat driver. God, why don't you go left? You, you, you should have, no, you went, you went the wrong way. God, you're going too slow. Would you just hurry up? I would, I would just love it if you, you hit the accelerator. That's the right, you know, it's like, and then when it comes to Monday morning quarterback, God, why'd you call that play? I, I wish you would have called this play. That would have won. I, I would have gotten this job if you would have just called that play. God, why? And then second guessing, God, I, 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 I wish you would have just listened to me. Didn't I pray like, should have God, you should have done this. Why, 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 why didn't you? And so we're constantly playing the backseat quarterback or the backseat, the Monday morning quarterback and the second guesser with a sovereign God. And, and what I, what I want to talk to us about this this morning is how like our human strategies like the the way we 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 want to go or what we want to do what we're thinking how our human strategies engage and intersect with God's sovereignty now I, I want us to be all on the same page so here's the definition of God's sovereignty that I'm working with God's sovereignty is God's rule and reign over all creation like he's in charge it's his rule and his reign, his control over all creation as he works in, through, and over all creation to bring about his ultimate end. So, so he's working in and through and over all creation to bring about his end. Now, what's his end? To be glorified in all of the earth as he redeems a people from all peoples to reflect his glory in all spheres of life, thereby bringing heaven to earth. That's God's end. So God's sovereignty is his rule and reign. It's his control over all creation. And he is working in and through and over all of his creation, the entire created order, to bring about, the, to, to bring about this ultimate end that he might be glorified, specifically through the people that he is redeeming. One people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group and as he's redeeming this people for his glory he's bringing heaven to earth that's God's sovereignty and it's his and it's his sovereignty that is working that is engaging and intersecting with our human strategy you can also say human responsibility so with that let me give you kind of the main point that we're going to flesh out this morning God's sovereignty doesn't always line up with our human strategy and therefore, we should seek to align our human strategy with God's sovereignty. So God doesn't always line up with what, what we would have done, what, what, we're, what we're thinking, how we think it should have fleshed out. Like, like he, he, it just doesn't. But we should want our human strategy the way we're thinking and operating, behaving and moving, we should want it to align and to sync up with God's sovereignty. So with that said, will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 12. Fascinating story. So it was about this time, so this is Dr. Luke writing, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now, Herod, King Herod comes from a, a, a long line of wicked Herod. So Herod the Great, 
uh, was in his lineage, and he's the one that put to death all of the two-year-olds and younger when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So, so about this time that King Herod, and so different Herod though, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, so the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. He had James put to death with the sword, so cut off his head. Well, when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he's like, all right, let's go get Peter. Let's go find all of them. We'll round them up. So he gets Peter, and this happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. Now, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly, what? Everybody say it praying to God for him. So the night before Herod was to bring him to trial and to put him to death, Peter was sleeping, sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. The sucker must have been really tired. And sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter. That Greek word struck means like he, I mean, he really delivered a blow to Peter. So Peter must be in REM sleep. So the only way the angel is going to wake up Peter is if he elbowed him in the jaw. So that's kind of, he struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Uh, Quick, get up, the angel said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then Peter came to himself and said, so I'm going to fast forward because I am going to deal with the chunk that we missed here in just a few moments. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda, whose name means Rose, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, ran back into the house, did not open the door for Peter and told everybody, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind. So so the church that was praying earnestly, when they hear God has done something, you got to be out of your mind. (laughs) And then when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. So when Dali, he's already been put to death and his angel before it goes into heaven is just kind of giving us a good, good, goodbye wave. <laughs> but Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Let's pray. Father, may you be glorified. Jesus, may you be the center of our lives, of Northland Church, of this message And Spirit, I pray that you would be unleashed to minister in and among us this morning, that we might leave different than when we came as a result of your ministry in our life, shaping, informing, and molding us into the image of Jesus. I pray, uh, Spirit, that you would convict those who are far from Jesus uh, this morning, that don't know Jesus, never trusted him as Lord and Savior. I pray, Spirit, that you would, you would draw them to the beauty, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the transforming power that only Jesus has. And it's in your name we pray, our King, amen. You may be seated. So one of the things that's going to be important that you keep in mind is something that we learned a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter five, where Paul says that we look at the world not the way the world looks at itself, but the way Jesus looks at the world. And the way Jesus looks at the world is he divides people into two categories. You're either a saint 
or you are a sinner. And that's important to understand in this passage is because we will see human strategies that are, that are from non-Christians engaging with God's sovereignty and we will see Christian strategy engaging with God's sovereignty. So let's look at the first big kind of category, God's sovereignty and the non-Christian strategy for life. So in this particular passage, that will be seen in King Herod, unbelieving Jews and soldiers. So how does the non-Christian engage and interact with God's divine sovereignty? Well, the first truth that we see in this passage is that God's sovereignty invades the life of non-Christians. I want you to realize that God in his rule and reign, he is invading the space that non-Christians occupy. So I put together an image to help us process this this morning. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. So if you, if you go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 1, you have God establishing the kingdom of God. He creates the cosmos, he creates the world, planet Earth, and then he goes to work creating a Garden of Eden, and he puts Adam and Eve in that garden. And what he's doing is he is establishing the kingdom of God here on planet Earth. There, there's that heaven coming to Earth. And as he, as he tells Adam and Eve, you need to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion because you are my image bearers reflecting my glory and thus my kingdom in all spheres of life. Well, we know the story. Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel. That's why I use rebellion and treason language because God is the high king of heaven. He, he wants to bring his kingdom to planet earth. He had created image bearers to live under his rule and reign, but they chose to rebel. They chose to commit treason against the high king of heaven. God kicks them out of the garden, and therefore we have the kingdom of man. Now, who instigated all of this at the very beginning? Satan did. So Satan rules over here. God has allowed him. God, Satan cannot defeat God, but God has allowed him to be the ruler, the prince of power of air over here of the kingdom of man as mankind lives under their own rule and reign. But as you study scripture from Genesis 3 all the way through, God is invading the kingdom of man. Now, when you think of a king invading land, you think of a king invading land to conquer, to obliterate, to annihilate the enemy. But that's not what God does when he invades the kingdom of man. He invades the kingdom of man to invite, invite the enemy back into the kingdom of God. He, he, he's, he says, like, I, I want to save you. I want to redeem you. I want to deliver you from yourself, from darkness, and I want to bring you back to the kingdom of God where I reign in marvelous light. So he is invading to invite and save, not to condemn and to annihilate. That's amazing. Because what other king? goes after his enemies and says, hey, I love you too much. I don't want to kill you, uh, but I want to invite you into my kingdom. I mean, amazing. So that's what we have going on here. But as he invades to invite, some people will receive and accept the invitation and some people won't, which leads to truth number two. Non-Christians strategically will oppose God's sovereignty and acted through his people. It's what I call the law of gospel motion. 
The law of gospel motion is something that I coined years ago, but it basically means that for every gospel action, the evil one attempts to have an equal and opposite reaction. And so anytime you see God and God's people enacting God's kingdom in their life through sharing the good news or through living out the implications of the good news, there's going to be an attempt by the evil one to have an equal and opposite reaction. And so what we see in this passage is that as God invades through his church, as he invades this area in his church, inviting people, there's going to be opposition to his people. And we see that through Herod, the unbelieving Jews, and yes, even the soldiers. So again, I created an image to help you understand God's opponents. You have the devil, Satan, is an opponent of God. You see him at the very beginning in Genesis and you see him throughout scripture. Then you have the world. And I put Babylon here and I put Babylon here on purpose because in Genesis 11, you have really the spirit of Babylon there in the city of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And that city was founded upon mankind's desire to become great, not their desire to glorify God. That's the spirit of Babylon. And then you you see Babylon as this nation going and conquering the people of God. And then later on in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible in the New Testament, in chapter 17 and 18, you see the great city of Babylon. So Babylon in scripture is the prototype of the kingdom of man or the city of of man. And so you have all three, the devil, the world, and the flesh, the sinful nature, they are colluding together to oppose God and his people. We see that here in this passage. So Herod arrests James, kills James, imprisons Peter because he saw that it pleased the unbelieving Jews. So there's this threat now towards the entire church. Like, listen, if you continue to follow Jesus, you will be arrested and you will be killed. And then they're inciting the public against God and his church. So I want you to know this, and this is for those of you who do not know Jesus. So those who do not know God, through Jesus will inevitably fight against him. So again, you got two camps. You're either in the saint camp or the sinner camp. And if you are in the sinner camp, here's what the Bible teaches, that you are at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God. There is no indifferent position that you can take. Like the soldiers, some of you might want to go, well, they're just there just doing what Herod, listen, there's no innocent people. There are no innocent people when it comes to those in the eyes of God. You're either a saint or you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, you are opposing God. So if you do not receive the invitation, you are in essence rejecting God and his sovereignty. And then we see the third truth, and that is non-Christians might strategically win battles, but they will not win the war against God's sovereignty. Okay, so what we see here in Acts 12 is that, all right, Herod looks like he won at least a battle. He killed James. Then he arrested Peter, and he's thinking, man, look at this, man. Everybody loves me, man. I beheaded this guy. I'm about, I'm about to behead this other guy. I mean, this, this is amazing. This is, this is win for me. Man, I'm scoring political points. I'm winning political battles. But then Peter is miraculously freed, as we'll see, 
And then Herod's like, oh my gosh, what, what happened? And so he had to now do some investigation into this situation. And so as he investigates the guards, they, and somehow, someway, which we'll see how, they lost Peter, Peter escaped, and now the guards will face the same sentence that Peter faced, which is death. So all of the guards lost their life. And then at the very end of chapter 12, Herod, he goes to another place and they, they are like shouting, oh my gosh, it's like, it's like seeing a God. And, he, and Herod's like, oh my, people love me. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so he did, he failed to give glory to God. And as a result, an angel strikes him he falls to the ground and some flesh-eating worms eat him alive and he dies. Read your Bible, it's full of fascinating stories. Flesh-eating worms. Non-Christians might strategically win battles, but they will not win the war against God's sovereignty. You can fight against God. You might even win some battles. Again, I'm talking to non-Christians right now. You might win some battles. You might be able to resist to a degree, but I promise you, you will not win the war. You won't win it. No power of hell, nor scheme of man will ever be able to face the sovereignty of God and win. And then look at what happens at the very end of chapter 12. We, we see this, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. That's why I am not worried about a dark world. I'm not worried about opposing forces. In some sense, I, I know this is hard to comprehend, but I'm not worried about losing the comfort of Christianity in the West. Because what we have seen for over 2,000 years is that you and no one will be able to thwart the plan of God. No one will be able to stop the spread of God's word. No one will be able to stop the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means that the church is supposed to be on the offense, not the defense, because the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not win. So, so that's human strategy from a non-Christian point of view, how they engage with God's sovereignty. Now let's look at the Christian. God's sovereignty and the Christian strategy for life. So we see in Acts 12, James, Peter, and the church. And so we're just gonna unpack uh, some truths that we see in this category. The first truth is this. God's sovereignty may involve different strategies for different Christians. Now, th these, are, these are truths that I want us to really think about, okay? Because here in this passage, James died and Peter lived. Now, if you look at James and Peter side by side, they're practically the same person. They're both fishermen. They're both disciples of Jesus. They both were in the inner circle of Jesus. Like Jesus had three close associates, Peter, James, and John. They both were leaders in the church. But in God's sovereignty, he chose to let James be gruesomely martyred and Peter miraculously freed. Like what in the world? How do you process that? Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but it does remind me of Hebrews chapter 11 
where the author there talks about the hall of faith and how some escaped the edge of the sword and others were stoned, sawn in two, and killed with the sword. So, so in God's sovereignty, some escape death miraculously. Some are put to death gruesomely. But we have to keep in mind a, a couple of things here as Christians. One of the things that we have to keep in mind is we actually need to change our perspective of Christian death. You do understand if you are a child of the king, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, death for the believer is entrance into eternal life. And our days, our days, here's what the Bible teaches. Our days have been numbered by the Lord. They've been numbered by him. That means we shouldn't number our days by ourselves, which means that we should not take life into our own hands. Only, only life is in the hands of God, not our hands. And so we, we, we need to give our life over to the sovereign will of God, not taking it into our own hands. That's why we should never take our own death but to die, according to the Apostle Paul, is gain. To live is Christ. So when you, put, when you put what we know about what the Bible teaches about death, God was ready for James to come home. His death was his homecoming. But God still had work for Peter to do. So, so life for the Christian is now Peter continuing his journey on mission. But don't miss this. In James's death, God was glorified. In Peter's living, God was glorified. So in both death and life, God is what? Glorified. So I, I don't know. I don't know why, why God takes people home early while leaving some to live into their 90s. I don't know. I don't know why God chooses to heal some and not others. I don't know why he chooses to use this person in one way and this person in another way. I don't know why he allows some to suffer more than others. I don't know why, why some are an object of God's wrath while others are an object of God's grace and mercy. I don't presume to know the mind of the Lord. That's why I love Isaiah where God, he's talking and he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And Paul writes this in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Just don't know. But here's what we do know, what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign and he is in control and he can do what he wants. And God has a plan and a purpose that he is working out. And as he works that plan and purpose out, you can always rest assured for those who know him, he's working for our good and his glory. He is perfect in all of his ways and he is just in all of his judgment. So even though we might not understand God's divine sovereignty, we will choose to trust the heart of our sovereign king. So... So it might be different. The, the second truth that we learn is this. God's sovereignty should lead Christians to strategically sleep and seek. Everybody say sleep. sleep. Everybody say seek. seek. 
So strategically sleep and seek. Oh, I love this point. Oh, I love it. So, so we see Peter, he's sleeping. But here's a Bible trivia question. When's the last time we saw Peter sleeping? At the garden of Gethsemane, when he shouldn't have been sleeping. Why? Because Jesus told him to stay awake. He told Peter, James, and John, yo, guys, I'm gonna go spend some time with my father seeking him. Will you stay here and seek him with me? So he goes, he prays to the father. He comes back. Those suckers are sleeping. And now he took a couple of Benadryl, melatonin, don't know. But he wakes them up. Guys, wake up, pray. I'm gonna go back and we'll spend some more time with the father. He does, he comes back. They're still sleeping. And he tells them the spirit is willing, but the flesh is. They're sometimes, hey, hey, Christian, when it comes to God's sovereignty, you need to know when to sleep and when to seek. See, Jesus was telling Peter, James, and John, you need to seek. Some of you right now, you're sleeping when you need to be seeking. You're asleep at the wheel, and you need to wake up and be aware of God's movement around you. But then, but then we see he's sleeping here. Now, why is he sleeping here? I mean, he's chained, and they've stripped him down to his skibbies, as you'll see here in a second. And he's chained to two men, and he's sound asleep. I don't know about you, but, but, if, but if I was chained to two men and I was even going to be playing golf the next day, I ain't sleeping. But he's sleeping, knowing that he's supposed to die the next day. Well, how do you explain that, Josh? Well, two things. He's pattering his life around Jesus because Peter would also know of the time when all hell was breaking loose on the sea where they were in a boat. And while they think they're about to lose their life and they're looking for Jesus, Jesus is sound asleep in the stern of the boat. And so now in Peter's life, when all hell is breaking loose around him, when there's chaos, when there's darkness, when, when death is looming, He's taking his cue from his king and he can be sleeping. So some of you, you're losing sleep by worrying about things that you cannot control, but you know the one who can. So when you are in chaos, you need to seek sleep. Rest in him. He's in control over the chaos in your life. But then, here's another reason why he's sleeping. In John 21, here's what Jesus tells Peter. It's the last chapter in the book of John. Jesus says, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to tell Peter the kind of death he would die. But the phrase, when you are old, at this point in his life, he hasn't hit that age yet of old. He's still young. So now he's sleeping because he's resting, not only in the pattern of his king, but the promise of his king. See, see the reason why, I mean, again, God's sovereignty should lead Christians to strategically sleep. Sleep. Some of you are not strategically sleeping because you're so worried about what's going on in your life. 
And yet Peter is sound asleep between two guards. So while Peter is sleeping, though, the church is seeking. And the Bible says that they're praying earnestly. That's why you need to be in community. So while you're sleeping, the community can be seeking. And so this earnest means intense, reaching out, stretching out themselves to God. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take just a few moments and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to drill a hole deep into this idea of prayer and the sovereignty of God. All right, because some of you want to know, why, why should I pray if God is sovereign? And we're going to tell you here. So the first thing I want to tell you about prayer, here's the first thought of prayer, is prayer is the means of communicating with the sovereign king about his sovereign will. Now, some of us, we are treating prayer as something that's not supposed to be. Prayer is not taking God, your grocery list, as if you're going on your Publix app and you're typing in all the groceries that you want. Well, I want some Fruit Loops. I want some oatmeal. Can you get me some of those berries? And you know, uh, listen, uh, bananas would be great. And then you can get me, you know, kind of a, a pound and a half of chicken breast. Like, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not taking your grocery list to God. Prayer is the means by which you communicate to the sovereign king about his sovereign will in your life. So I love how John Piper talks about prayer as this walkie-talkie. It's this walkie-talkie in the midst of war where now you get to pray to the commander of your needs on the ground to advance his mission, not to go buy your groceries. So that's why you need to understand what, what God's sovereignty is and what he's, a, what he's seeking to accomplish because prayer is asking God to meet the needs on the ground in your life as you advance his mission in the world. That, that, that's what prayer is. Again, not a grocery list, not an I dream a genie thing. It's not like this Aladdin genie thing where I'm gonna, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna make these requests to God and I hope and pray that he'll just blink and boom, it will happen. That is not what prayer is. The, the second thought about prayer is that prayer continues even though the outcome, outcomes of God's sovereignty may have been opposite of our supplications. Some of you, you've prayed for things and the outcome has not been what you prayed for. Do you not think they earnestly prayed for James too? I'm almost certain that they, they would have. They're earnestly praying for Peter. What's to, what's to make us think that they wouldn't have earnestly prayed for James? James, though, was beheaded, and Peter will see that he was miraculously freed. They didn't stop praying, even though the outcome wasn't what they wanted. So let me apply, let me apply this here on Mother's Day. Maybe you grew up praying for a mom, yet you found yourself can continually being shuffled from one foster home to another and you never got the mom that you desired. Maybe you want to be a mom but you first need to find Mr. Right and you've been praying for Mr. Right to come along but all you have found is Mr. Wrong. Maybe you're married and you and your husband, you've been praying for a child but now it's been years. You've even started to see the doctors to kind of help but still no movement. Maybe you prayed for your pregnancy to be without complications, but you still had that miscarriage. Maybe you prayed for your baby to be healthy, 
Yet when your baby was born, there was complications. Maybe you prayed for your child to grow up, follow the Lord, have a heart for the Lord, but now as a grown child, they're living like hell. Maybe you've prayed to be restored and reconciled to your mom so that you could have a better, closer relationship with her, but she's still not ready. Maybe you've prayed for your mom to be healed, but the Lord still took her home. God doesn't always answer our prayers in the affirmative, but that doesn't mean we do away with prayer. The outcomes of our prayers shouldn't lead us to make prayer obsolete. Prayer is not meant to be a disappointment in our life, but a divine appointment with the one running our life. Prayer is not meant to leave us angry at God, but aware of what God may be doing. So even though the outcome may not be what you are praying for, it doesn't mean for you to stop praying. So that's where it would probably be helpful for us to understand once again, how do we pray? Here's how we pray. This is what Jesus taught us. And I'm just gonna go through it real quick, but I'm gonna help you out this morning. Our Father in heaven, we can go to the sovereign king and we can call him Abba. We can call him daddy. We can call him father for that is who he is in our life. And he's not just some earthly father. No, he is our father where? In heaven. So we're gonna trust, we're gonna trust the father's heart even though we can't understand his hands. We're gonna go to him. And then we're going to say this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is above every name. Your name is holy. Your name is distinct. Your name is separate. Your name is powerful your name hallowed be your name our father abba you are holy and separate and distinct and we're coming to you in your name and then your kingdom come now think about how god's kingdom came in jesus it was it was the reversal he brought about the reversal of the effects of sin and so yes we pray for healing uh, we pray uh, for the oppression to be lifted the, the the demon possession to be cast out we we pray for that we pray for reconciliation but never forget though that when god's kingdom came in the person and work of jesus it came in suffering and sacrifice and death. Okay, so, so again, you gotta keep that in mind as you're praying for his kingdom to come in your life. And then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus modeled this for us in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, if it would be your will, take this cup from me. Uh, take this cup of judgment from me because he's about to be judged for the sin of the world even though he was the perfect sacrifice even though he was the perfect lamb of god so he's saying god if you can take this judge this judgment from me that that would be awesome but then he says not my will but yours be done so he's praying for for god's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven so for the believer we we there's there are some things in scripture that we know what god's will is we know that his will is our sanctification. We know that his will is for our sexual purity. We know that his will is for us to possess the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So when we go to the Father in heaven, we're praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Those are the things that we are praying for, not only in our life, but the ones that we are supplicating, we're interceding for. And then he says, oh, this is 
good right here. Give us today our daily what? So he's saying, like, when you go to the Lord in prayer, you're not going to him with a list of wants, but your needs. You need bread to survive. You need water to survive. And then notice he's not getting ahead of himself. Like, will you give us, will you give us this next month our daily bread? For the next one to three years, will you, no, no, just, just today. Let, let tomorrow worry about itself, what Jesus would say. But for today, this is what we need. This is what we need to glorify, to have the sustenance, to have the physical power to glorify you. So this is what we need, Lord. But then, oh, th- th- this is well worth the attendance here. There's going to come a time in every single person's life where that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, will run out. Because we will not have what we need to sustain life on planet Earth. But here's, here's some things that we know about bread when it comes to Jesus. Is that man does not live by bread alone, but on every what? Word. And then we also see that Jesus is the bread of heaven, of life. So when... F- our physical days run out because we don't have the bread to sustain us. We enter into the eternal storage of our heavenly father where the bread of life is there to welcome us. And we'll feast on him for all eternity. So that's where you gotta keep in mind, your perspective, heavenly perspective in our earthly journey. That, that's what give us today our daily bread is all about. And then, then forgive us our trespasses. So, so, so for a believer, the reason why we take our sin to the Lord is not for the Lord to resave us, but to renew us. And so we're gonna go to him and we're gonna start listing all of our sins. I had unbelief here, I doubted you here. Man, I looked at what I shouldn't have looked at here uh, my heart is in the wrong place I had impure motives I mean you're gonna go go to him because what you're doing as you confess is you're reminding yourself who you are and who he is which then will allow you to pray this way too and as we forgive those who trespass against us See, if you never take your, your sins to the Lord it's gonna be hard for you to forgive the sins of others against you and then the last is this Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, I'm struggling here. I need your presence, I need your power, I need your provision. Protect me here. You see, and and, and the result of, of adopting this model of the Lord's prayer, it will never lead us to cease praying, but continuing in it because we understand prayer. And did you know that there will be some things that if you did not persist in prayer, you won't see a breakthrough, but if you persisted in prayer, you will see a breakthrough. And we see that with the widow in Luke 18, because she persisted, she persisted. So don't give up praying, even though some outcomes did not come out the way You prayed about it. And then the the third thing about that we see is prayer that works with God's sovereignty to move mountains miraculously doesn't require massive faith, but mustard seed-like faith. (laughs) So they're praying earnestly for Peter. 
Peter then shows up at the door and they don't believe it. That brings a lot of comfort to my heart because you, you, you don't need faith like a Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. Just faith enough like a small mustard seed. And God can use that faith to miraculously move mountains. All right, so, so let's, let's keep on. So God's sovereignty works in now. So so we're getting back to how how human strategy and God's sovereignty engage. God's sovereignty works in a supernatural strategic way to accomplish his unbelievable plan in our life. Oh, I I love this. Tell your neighbor, he loves this point. This is awesome. This is absolutely amazing. So I'm just gonna walk through it, start in verse six. So the night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, Peter sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentry stood at the entrance. Suddenly an angel appeared and light shone in the cell. So it didn't alarm the guards. I mean, never mind a divine light showing up in this dark cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. You don't think the guards would have felt that? They're chained to Peter. Peter's chains fell off. I mean, so there's this change, but the guards don't notice. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Now, why he's in his skivvies? Don't know, but put on your clothes. You can't go out. You can't go out naked. All right, we need your clothes and your sandals on. So Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Wouldn't you love to have a supernatural sweet spot in your life that what is happening in reality, it is mind boggling to you that you think you're dreaming. And then they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. Still nothing. And it opened, this gate opened for them by itself. Well, uh, uh, open is the word automate in Greek, which is where we get our word automatic. This is the first automatic gate right here. Had, 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 some, had some sensors, I don't know, or maybe they did a little Harry, Harry Potter, like automate. I mean, I don't know, but it opened by itself. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. (laughs) In the grand scheme of things, this should not have happened. There's no way. What happened should have happened. But when you have the Lord's angel doing things for you, human things that are impossible becomes possible. And then this, oh, this is so good. This is so good. Not everything the Lord is calling you to do or leading you into is hard. I mean, this is blowing Peter's ever-loving mind. It's like, this prison break shouldn't be this easy. Somebody should at least be trying to stop me, but nothing's happening. So here's how I want to apply it to, to, to you this morning because he's imprisoned. There's gonna be times we are imprisoned by our thoughts, our emotions, 
We're imprisoned by a besetting sin. We're imprisoned by our lack of ability, maybe even our lack of faith. We're imprisoned by what others say about us. We're imprisoned by uncertainty, imprisoned by a lack of clarity, a lack of knowledge. We're imprisoned by our past. We're imprisoned by our fear. But then God will show up. And he will work in a supernaturally strategic way to supernaturally pave a way for you to continue to live out his plan for your life. And when I think about that, I am here today and I can tell you, I can tell you with every fiber of my being, I don't know why I'm here. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be opening up the word to you week in and week out, but in God's sovereign plan he worked out in a supernatural way and he aligned it to where I could be here preaching to you and it's like a dream come true and I promise you God wants to work he wants to work a supernaturally sweet spot in your life and do things that you think are a dream but they truly are a reality because the sovereign God intersected with your life and he's doing the impossible through you. And that's what we see with Peter. And the only thing that you're gonna be able to say is what Peter said and here's what Peter said. <laughs> now I know without a doubt that the Lord, everybody say the Lord, the Lord has sent an angel. He has rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen to me. Only God. Amen. And that's, that's what God wants to do in his children's life. So the, the next two, and I, I'm done, and I, these, these aren't long, but I, just, I had to put them here. God's sovereignty will always lead Christians strategically to be part of his church. So when, he, when the angel breaks him out of jail, where does he go? He goes to where the church is praying. I will never let an opportunity go to waste where I, where, where I, I don't tell you how important the church is. And so here it is. He could have just left and hightailed it out of the city, but he goes to where they're praying. You and I, we need the church. It is God's strategy to, to fulfill his sovereign plan. And then the last one, this is kind of one of my favorites here. God's sovereignty doesn't mean Christians should be strategically stupid. <laughs> Pastor Josh said stupid. Yeah, I did. And on purpose too. So I know some of you are like, I, I, I got to hear this one. Okay, here it is. So when Peter escaped, he gets to the house and they finally come to the door. They're astonished and they start causing a, a ruckus. And what does he do? He tells them to be quiet. Tells them to be quiet. Hey, listen, don't cause undue attention. And then... I would have, I mean, listen, if that had just happened to you, I, listen, I would, I'm just, I would just think about what I might would have done. Again, that second guesser, I might have just walked all over to Herod's palace and went, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you can't kill me. I mean, like, I would, listen, like, that, that would, that's amazing. But he doesn't do that. Tells them to quiet down. Christians should not cause unnecessary attention. Christians should not taunt their opponents. 
Christians should not proactively pick fights with unbelievers. We don't need to call them names. We don't need to get into unnecessary arguments. We don't need to belittle them for their beliefs or their values. We should not be looking for a fight with the world. We should be looking for ways to win the world. Now, I... I've heard pastors and church leaders over the years, and there are even some right now, they talk about how we need to have the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, and Jesus, and how we need to pick fights with the Jezebels and the prophets of Baal and the Pharisees and religious leaders today, and how the church today and Christians need to pick fights with the world. The only problem with that is not accurate. The so-called fights of Elijah, John the Baptist, and Jesus that they picked were not with the world, but with the wayward people of God. The, these people of God, these wayward people of God, they were carnal, unbelieving Jews. And so therefore the fights were with the wayward people of God and they were more like acts of discipline. And listen, I will go toe to toe. If you believe that you are a Christian and you are living in unchristian ways, yes, I, I will go toe to toe with you. We should, we should, we should confront one another in love but when you look at the way God engaged the world when you look at the way Jesus engaged the world people far from him it isn't through picking fights but proclaiming the faith and living out the implications of the kingdom of God and so when it comes to believers, the message and the ministry of Christ, uh, the, the good news of the kingdom, how Jesus is in the process of making all things new, it does elicit opposition as we see here in this passage. But they don't go looking for trouble. See, Jesus did not fight the world with his fists, but with his heart. Jesus did not use his hands to hurt the world, but his hands to heal the world. Jesus did not protect his life from the world, but he gave up his life for the world. So Christians, hey, listen, let's not be stupid. Let's not go looking for opponents to fight, but opportunities to share and show. It's hard to win people when you're at war with them. And... uh while I'm on this stupid is business, one of the most strategically stupid things Christians do also is they fight with one another. So stop it. You say, what's happened, Pastor Josh? Nothing. I just took the liberty to tell you, don't fight with each other. Don't slander one another. Don't be malicious with one another. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we might be one so that the world might know that he exists. So let's not be strategically stupid in how we engage the world and how we engage one another. But let us seek to align our human strategies with God's divine sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your word, how it shapes and molds us. It's the power. It's the power that brought creation into existence. Your word. And so it is the power that gives shape and formation to the new creation that the word Jesus Christ has brought into existence. So I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters that they may be struggling today and understanding 
how their life intersects with your sovereignty. Spirit, will you give them encouragement? Will you take the truths and drive them deep into their heart that they might walk even more faithful than they did before? And it's in your name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with us as we end?